from the newsroom of the Washington Post. Washington Post. This is Colby. Yeah, yeah. 何老师你好，我是华盛顿邮报记者施嘉欣。Hi, it's Stephanie McCrumman from the Washington Post. I'm good. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, July 21st. Today, how athlete infections are testing whether the Olympics really can be COVID safe. Plus, why your rent is going up and a deep fake controversy. Before anyone arrived in Tokyo, we had to get tested twice. Michelle Yehili is the Post's incoming Tokyo bureau chief. She's reporting from inside the Olympics bubble in Tokyo, where the games are kicking off in just a few days. She spoke to producer Emma Talkoff. We had to get COVID tested and show a negative test within 96 hours of our takeoff flight, and then as soon as we landed, we had to take another test at the airport and then be cleared with a negative test before we were able to actually leave the airport. All the journalists who have come in have done that. All the athletes, the staff members who have come in with the athletes, everyone has gone through that protocol. And then when we're here, the athletes are getting tested every day, and they have to show a negative test. But despite those precautions, there are now more than 60 confirmed COVID cases at the Olympics. Days before the opening ceremony, we saw the first cases out of the Olympic Village come out. They were two members of the South African men's soccer team, and then a third person with the soccer team who was not an athlete tested positive as well. Those three cases were the first to actually break out within the Olympic Village, where all the athletes and their personnel all dine and live and get tested. And then、um, it turned out that 21 people on the team ended up coming into close contact with them. So essentially, 24 people on the South African men's soccer team had to be individually isolated.、Um, many of them are still in isolation. They actually have a game coming up tomorrow. We're not yet sure if they're going to be able to play. But in the past few days, as more athletes arrive into Japan, we're seeing here and there、uh, various numbers of different countries testing positive. Just today, we saw a Taekwondo fighter from Chile test positive. There was a member on Team USA's、uh, women's gymnastic team who tested positive. Someone from the Netherlands, from the Czech Republic.、Uh, they're kind of. Starting to pop up, and of course they're getting isolated immediately. But we'll see whether they're able to contain to those individual cases. Do we know anything about the condition of those who have tested positive? Like, are they mostly asymptomatic? How are those people doing? We don't know much. I mean, unless the athletes themselves share publicly, which some、mm-hmm. of them have been on Instagram or their Twitter accounts, but for the most part, Olympic officials have not been sharing individual medical conditions with us. And do we know if any of these cases were people arriving from their home countries already infected, or do you get the sense that COVID is now kind of spreading within the Olympic Village? We're not sure yet whether it's spreading throughout the village. Every morning, we get an update of how many people newly tested positive from the day before, whether they live inside the village or outside, whether they're games personnel, an athlete, or a journalist. That's the information we know every day. But what else we know is that you're supposed to test negative with two tests before you land, and then you're supposed to test negative again after you land. So the people、mm. testing positive. Clearly, somehow 
were not testing positive during that time before takeoff and right after arrival and had some sort of a lag of their actual negative test between the negative and the positive test. So it's that incubation period that people seem to be arriving during Mm -hmm. and who is actually traveling around the village during that incubation period, not knowing that they're about to test positive, we don't know that. And so that's a huge unknown factor that is likely taking place within the village that we're just waiting to see either come up or, you know, hopefully subside. What are organizers of the Olympics saying about these cases? The organizers of the Olympics are saying that they know that there are going to be some positive cases, that it's impossible for there to be no cases at all, but that their focus is to make sure that when there is a positive case, they're on it, that they Mm -hmm. act quickly, that they isolate that person and they minimize risk as much as possible. So there's been a lot of concern leading up to these Olympics that they could become kind of a super spreader event, especially because the Delta variant is on the rise really around the world. Do you think these first cases are a sign that that could become a reality? And are people there concerned about that? Well, there is a lot of anxiety around here that these cases could spread. Mm -hmm. But for now, it's important to keep the positive cases in context. So far, the people who have tested positive who came in from outside of Japan, uh, they represent a very low percentage of the total number of people who have come in. It's way below 1% of people Mm -hmm. who have arrived into Japan. In addition to that, it's important to remember that the athletes are kept very separately from the general public. The Olympic Village no one else except the athletes and their team staff can enter. Not even journalists can enter, certainly not the general public. Mm. And so the Olympics officials are trying to ensure us that there are separation measures in place to make sure that this does not become a super spreader event, that if there is a case that the case is quickly isolated, anyone who may have come into contact is quickly isolated so that there is no potential exposure to the general public. It is also important to keep in mind that Tokyo right now, the cases just keep going up. Uh, Just today, which is Wednesday local, the number of cases today was the most since January of this year. So it keeps spiking. There is a state of emergency here within Tokyo. So people are watching the spread of this virus in Tokyo itself. And then, of course, there's the Olympic Village, which is located in Tokyo with a bunch of athletes coming in, thousands and thousands of them. Um, So there is definitely anxiety around here. Is there a plan for the end of the Olympics to prevent all the thousands of people who are gathered in Tokyo right now from potentially bringing COVID cases back to their home countries? The athletes who arrive in Japan to compete in the Olympics, for the most part, have to leave after they compete uh, within 48 hours of their competition. So throughout the three weeks of the Olympics, we're going to see an ebb and flow of athletes coming in and out of Tokyo. So the Olympics officials are trying to keep a certain threshold of people in the Olympic Village so that it doesn't actually get to maximum capacity to try to lower the risk. So theoretically, by the time closing ceremony happens, it's going to be nowhere near the number of people who are going to be here for the opening ceremony and nowhere near the the number of athletes that will be here at the peak of the games. So we're going to see the people coming in and out of Tokyo just as um, a product of the way that they have designed the flow of people. Is there any reason to think that 
the Olympics could actually get canceled or postponed again at this point because of the cases that are popping up. At this point, there's no reason to think that it's about to get canceled or postponed again. For one thing, Beijing is coming up very soon, the Winter Olympics. And for another thing, I mean, all plans are underway. The opening ceremony is about to take place. People are here. And to actually cancel the games, it would take a lot. It would become a legal problem. There are lots of legal issues that come up with having to cancel the games. It would become a financial problem. It would be a political nightmare. And for it to cancel would really take a catastrophic event, I think, to get there. Um, Although you should never say never, you just never know what will happen. Michelle Yehi Lee is the incoming Tokyo bureau chief for The Post. This story was produced by Emma Talkoff. So, Heather Long, economics reporter at The Post. Are you on Zillow? Have you, like, been on Zillow before? Have I been? Um, Probably what day am I not on some of these real estate websites? It is a great pastime. Yeah, I feel like we're all obsessed. So oftentimes I'm on Zillow because I'm kind of obsessed with keeping tabs on how expensive apartments are to rent in my building. And for basically the whole of the pandemic, I was like, oh, my gosh, I pay this amount in rent. And look at these other people who are getting to rent for way cheaper. And then all of a sudden, in the last few months, that completely switched. And now apartments in my building are way more expensive and the prices keep going up. And it has been amazing to see. The great deals for rent are over. You are seeing exactly what's going on across the country, pretty much everywhere except New York and San Francisco. So places like Phoenix and Tucson and Las Vegas and Boise, Idaho, and similarly on the East Coast, the Atlantis of the world, Stanford, Connecticut, these sort of places that are just surging many parts of Florida. And it's crazy. We're talking about well over 10% rent increases and What really blew my mind in looking at this, not only are those rent concessions gone that you and I have been sort of watching for no more two or three months free rent, but there's actually bidding wars now on rental properties. But it really wasn't that long ago that we were hearing all these stories of landlords who were basically giving apartments away because they were struggling to find tenants. So how did this change so quickly? Basically, this is the story of the economy reopening. If you look at data from Zillow or Apartments.com back in October, November of last year, when Pretty much nobody wanted a one-bedroom or a studio, certainly not in a big city, if they could avoid it. Uh, Two-thirds of apartments had these major rent concessions. And today that number is under a third. So it's been cut in half and that continues to decline sort of week by week. And basically, people are returning to cities again. So you have students coming back for the fall or for internships. You have people who are starting to head back to the office. And what happened was a lot of Gen Z and millennials uh, in their 20s and 30s, maybe they moved home for a while or moved in with friends when their lease expired. Now they're all trying to rent again. At the same time, we've, we've talked about the hot housing market, the real estate home sales. And you're seeing baby boomers 
who are selling their homes. Maybe their kids are grown. They don't need a large house anymore. They can see how crazy this home market is. They can get five, 10 bids on their house. And you know, they're saying, well, where else am I going to buy? And they're starting to rent again. So we've got basically three generations in the rental market, baby boomers, millennials, Gen Z. As several people explained to me, that's never happened before to have three generations, two of which are some of the biggest generations the United States has ever seen, all sort of competing against each other for these one, two, three bedroom rentals at a time when it wasn't like we put up a ton of apartment buildings during the pandemic. There just isn't a ton of supply. But also this is coming so fresh off of the depths of the economic hardships of the pandemic. And what is it like for people who are just trying to basically get their lives back together, you know, get working again and get back to normal and now facing these exorbitant prices for rent? renters are getting hit over and over again. Renters during the pandemic were far more likely to lose their jobs than people who own their homes. And we're sort of seeing this similar pattern now where uh, not just luxury rental prices are going up, but certainly a lot of these middle-class, working-class apartments are realizing that they can charge more. And that's some of these places that are suddenly charging $200, $300, $400 more. And I heard so many comments once I was interviewing people or on you know, people responding on social media to the story, like, you know, people literally feeling like, my only alternative may be to be homeless. You know, they're they're going online, they're looking for another place to live. And there's just not a lot available right now. And what is available is not significantly cheaper than some of the prices that they're being quoted. It's just so disheartening and depressing. I'm thinking of Shondra Layton, who lives in the Denver suburbs, rents a studio apartment, one of those that was supposedly nobody wanted just a few months ago. I'm Shondor Layton. I am 54. I live in Inglewood, Colorado, and I've lived in Colorado pretty much all my life. He just got a note on his door saying that his rent would be going from about $1,000 a month to $1,350. From $1,069 to $1,345 is really a, a huge uh, spike increase. So I'm looking at about 20 26% is actually what, what that amounts to. So, you know, $276 uh, on top of that uh, is, a, is a pretty huge increase. And he only had like 10 days to decide whether to stay or go. Okay, well, you have 10 days. So then you're like scrambling. Well, what do you do? You know, do you, do you take a few days extra off work to try to find something? Do you try to scramble, try to find something on the weekends? And the way that housing markets are now, it makes it very difficult to, to do that. I don't care how good you are at internet sleuthing and how good you are at scouring Zillow and apartments.com or Craigslist. It's hard to find anything in 10 days. Can they do that? And especially considering that there were so many protections for renters over the course of the pandemic. I mean, has all of that basically evaporated? Exactly. This is one of the biggest issues. These rent increases are, are happening in places that don't have a ton of protections. And the eviction moratorium expires at the end of July. So landlords sort of know that there's, uh, they have the power right now. 
I'm curious about what the perspective is of landlords here, because it does feel like property owners are the villain in all of this. But at the same time, I'm sure that there are a lot of property owners who really struggled during the pandemic. They weren't collecting rent because of eviction moratoriums and because of other protections in place for tenants. And so how are they viewing the fact that the the market is suddenly in their favor? You're exactly right. And actually, Shandor asked his management company, you know, what's what's up with this rent increase? And they said what a lot of landlords were telling me. And they said, look, uh, we didn't make as much money as we anticipated. It's been a really rough year for us the past year. And this is their way to recoup some of that, to try to get ahead, to try to make up from some of those losses that happened in the past you know, year, year and a half uh, from places that either where tenants weren't paying or where the property sent, sat vacant for months on end. So I think, yes, some of this is a reaction to what we saw uh, during the pandemic for landlords as well. My name is Jason Giroux. I'm a uh, designated broker and property manager in Gilbert, Arizona. Jason has been a property manager for about 15 years in the Phoenix area, and he just kept stressing to me that he's never seen anything like this. So we've just seen a, a massive influx of population into the Phoenix metro area. We've seen um, housing supply go down. Uh, we've seen renters and buyers have a heck of a time trying to find a place that meets their needs. Uh, we've seen rates going up both on the sales and the rental side um, and just a, a super competitive market for for everyone looking for housing right now. He basically has seen a number of bidding wars on rentals. And when I asked him about this, he said, look, he's not. he didn't just decide overnight to ask people to write their best offer for the rental. What was happening is on a lot of his properties that he was managing, he was getting over 10 applications for the property and people were literally writing on the property, on the application, I will pay $500 more than what you're asking per month. I mean, just crazy amounts that he, he just felt it wasn't fair for other people not to know that this was going on. So he sort of went back to all the applicants and explained, please write your best offer because other people are doing this. Balancing that with the idea of affordability and especially when you have a quality tenant that pays their rent on time that has never caused any problems, how do we balance an increased return on investment with not overcharging a tenant on a renewal, for instance. And we've also seen things like people paying 12 months in advance, you know, to try to, it's sort of the equivalent of waiving an inspection on a home purchase. The equivalent is the, in the rent market is I'll give you 12 months rent up front. I mean, it's just hard for even a middle-class person to compete with people who are doing that. There's a serious debate in this country about inflation. You know, how big of a problem is inflation and overheating in the economy? And you can sit here like the Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell did in recent days and say, oh, things like airfare and hotels and used cars, that's all temporary. Unless we think there's going to be a, a multi-year, many-year shortage of used cars in the United States, we should look at this as, as temporary. Sure, fine. Even if I buy that's temporary, these rent increases are not. You know, Shondor is going to be paying 300 extra dollars a month probably for 12 months. This is a permanent change and a permanent mentality shift in the economy. And is there an expectation that this swing between low rent prices and high rent prices, that's going to level out at some point soon? Or is there an expectation that the 
price of renting an apartment or a house is going to continue to go up for months and maybe years. It's really hard to see this being solved anytime soon for the simple reason that you don't put up an apartment building overnight. And a lot of the single family homes that used to be rentals, some of them have been sold off because people want to make money in this in this market. And I've talked to some people who's they're like, I understand why my landlord put the house up for sale right now. They're getting a ton of money for it and they, they're older and they want to exit. So there's just fewer and fewer rentals right now for the demand that's out there. And it's hard to see the, de- the demand ebbing anytime soon because you can see just these waves of people coming back to work, waves of people coming back to cities in the next few months. So uh, most people I speak to say, yeah, it's easily another year of, of this. Now, whether it's 25% increase you know, every month, who knows? But certainly we're, we're likely to see it's, it's going to get worse before it gets better. Heather Long is an economics correspondent for The Post. The story was produced by Jordan Marie Smith. This podcast is sponsored by Monarch Money. Are you saving to reach your financial goals? Reaching those goals isn't just about getting more money, but by managing what you have. And the best way to manage your money? Monarch Money. Monarch Money is a new kind of finance app that's intuitive, powerful, ad-free, and takes the headaches out of budgeting. Try it free when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. Monarch puts all your accounts, investments, transactions, and finances at your fingertips. With a complete view of your finances, you'll gain insights on your spending and find new ways to save. Plus, Monarch lets you customize your dashboard, collaborate with your partner, set custom budgets and goals, and track your progress toward them. See why Mint users are turning to Monarch Money and loving it. And why the Wall Street Journal named Monarch Money the best budgeting app overall. Get a 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H money.com slash podcast for your free trial. monarchmoney.com slash podcast. And now, one more thing from General Assignment reporter Timothy Bella about Roadrunner, a new documentary focused on the late chef Anthony Bourdain. The controversy stems from the filmmaker's choice to actually deep fake three sound bites into the actual film itself that Anthony Bourdain did not actually say himself, but he wrote either in one of his books or one of his own personal writings. You are successful, and I am successful, and I'm wondering, are you happy? I know how These words were on paper and not in audio form. So what Neville actually did was he fed over 10 hours of recordings featuring Anthony Bourdain into this AI model that would actually deep fake his voice. And the end product to that were these three sound bites that if you did not know they were actually deep faked, you would not know that he never actually verbally said that. Anthony Bourdain was a titan. My guest tonight is a world-renowned chef, best-selling author and publisher and host of the Emmy-winning CNN original series, Anthony Bourdain, Parts Unknown. Celebrity chef Anthony Bourdain shooting for his TV series, 
praising the president's chopstick skills before picking up the $6 tab for the leader of the free world. And uh, all of the things I need for happiness. Low plastic stool, check. Tiny little plastic table, check. Something delicious in a bowl, check. This film comes three years after his suicide and it shocked the entire world and his millions of fans. I know at least on my end and and for so many others, there are so many unanswered questions about his life and some of the actual demons he struggled with. This new documentary of filmmaker Morgan Neville attempted to just kind of dig into who Anthony Bourdain was. One minute I was standing next to a deep fryer, and the next I was watching the sunset over the Sahara. What am I doing here? He really wanted this whole film to be in Anthony Bourdain's voice. He wanted Anthony to be the narrator of his own documentary. So in turn, he had this idea to create an AI model of his voice that since that has become public has been extremely controversial. The director is now coming under fire after revealing he used AI to recreate the late chef's voice. It came to light because Morgan Neville was extremely open about this whole editorial process. Um, in interviews with uh, GQ and The New Yorker, he openly admitted that he defaked Bourdain's voice. And he emphasized that he was not actually putting words into Tony's mouth. However, he also kind of brushed aside any concerns about ethics. Actually telling The New Yorker at one point, he can have a documentary ethics panel about it later. And as soon as those interviews got put out there, critics just lambasted the decision as extremely weird and unethical. Despite this controversy, his fans came out in full force for this film. The film had a almost $2 million opening its first weekend. So controversy or no controversy people just want to hear and see Anthony Bourdain one more time Timothy Bella is a general assignment reporter for The Post the story was produced by Corey Suzuki that's it for Post Reports thanks for listening Today's show was mixed by Lena Muhammad. Tomorrow on Post Reports, a two-part story. It's about a woman who finds herself stuck in a camp on the Mexican border and caught in the middle of U.S. immigration policy. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with that story from The Washington Post.